Well, if you have a Bible, open up to Galatians chapter 5. If you're using one of our hardback Bibles, it's there in the pew in front of you. It's page 916. Galatians chapter 5. It'll certainly be helpful if you've got a copy of God's Word open so you can follow along with us. Only two verses that we're looking at this morning. So we kind of, and these are in the midst of a passage that we preached last Sunday. But it seems good to narrow down and to kind of zoom in on these fruits of the Spirit. So we understand from last week that the Holy Spirit, we have the Spirit inside of us as Christians. The Spirit now is able to overpower our sinful flesh. And we looked in particular at some of the the fruits of our sinful flesh that the Spirit pushes back on and frees us from. But of course, we're also given these positive fruits of the Spirit. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23. There's sort of a bare bones outline on the back of the worship guide, if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on as as we move along. Um, in, uh, In Maine, when we lived in Maine, trees were falling down all the time. So Part of that is because the the soil in Maine is really, really rocky and not small rocks, but huge granite chunks. One one time the Marie and the kids were down in Kentucky and I built a stone wall in the backyard from our backyard. So I would literally, I would walk 10 feet and I would pull a huge rock out of the ground and I would walk back and sit it down. And then under that rock, there were four more rocks. So I just kept bringing rocks. Well, because there's so many rocks, the soil is so rocky. The trees, they spread their roots out, but they can't get real deep. And then, of course, we've got a lot of snow, and so that hangs on those trees, or we would have big windstorms in the fall. So lots of downed trees all the time. And if you have a tree, especially if it falls on your driveway, we had that happen once or across the road in front of your house, you either have to get a bunch of friends to come over with chainsaws and cut it up and dispose of it that way, or you'd have to call a service to to bring a wood chipper in to really totally get rid of it. Okay, well, well, think about that, that picture. Think about a, a tree getting fed into a wood chip or destroying that tree. That's, that's really a good picture of what's been going on in the book of Galatians so far, these first five chapters. So before you were a Christian, before I was a Christian, we were like that fallen tree laying down there dead. So you, you were rotten. You had failed the, the purpose for which you were created, which was to stand, to bear fruit for the Lord. That's what we were supposed to do. We had not done that. Instead, because of your sin and rebellion against God, it it was like you were laying dead across the Lord's driveway, sort of a crude way to put it. Not only were you not working for the Lord, but you were actually, I was actually working against the Lord, laying there dead. You and I, because of our sin, because of that, we, we deserve to be destroyed. So just like that tree, it's a nuisance. That's what we deserved for somebody to bring the wood chipper, for us to be taken out of the way, destroyed. Just like Paul told us in Galatians 3.10, everyone who does not obey the commands of God perfectly deserves to be cursed, destroyed, right? Put in the wood chipper. But, but of course, what Galatians has been telling us, the good news of the gospel, is that God sent Jesus to pay for all of our sins by him living a perfect life and then trading that perfect life, giving it up to death on the cross so we don't have to. He was cursed so we don't have to be cursed. He stood in our place and took God's judgment on our behalf. And because of that, it's like instead of going into the wood chipper, you get dragged off the driveway out of the way. Let's say you get laid next to the tree line over there in the forest next to the house. You've been spared from destruction. But see, the gospel of Jesus, it's, it's too good, and that's because God is too good, for it just to stop there. That's not the only good part of the gospel, is that we're spared from judgment. 
No, the Lord is too good for that. We're not just dead trees that are laying on the ground and not being destroyed. No, once he saved us by the blood of Christ, then what he does is he picks you up and he makes you alive again and he plants you and then he produces fruit through you. He makes you a healthy living tree. That's part of the good news of the gospel. So so what does that tree look like? That's an illustration. What's it look like literally? What are the fruits that the Holy Spirit produces in the Christian? How can a Christian be identified? Well, Paul tells us here in our passage this morning, the kinds of fruit that the Lord produces through living trees. So verse 22 and 23 of Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, we're going to look at these particular characteristics and, and what they mean, but, but we want to understand why we're doing this. So what are we hoping will happen as we learn about these particular fruits of the Spirit? What is it the Lord is wanting to change in us as we hear about these things? Well, I think two main things that are supposed to happen to us as we interact with these fruits of the Spirit in His Word. So first of all, we'll be encouraged. We'll be encouraged as we recognize how kind the Lord is to not just forgive our sins, but also to give us new life, to make us healthy, to make us thriving, living humans the way that His Spirit does, to live life the way it was meant to be lived in this world. So we'll be thankful, we'll be encouraged, but second, We're being called on to pursue these fruits of the Spirit. So these are things the Spirit does in us, but he also gives us his list so that we would pursue these things. There was a a British theologian, he's gone home to be with the the Lord, his name is J.I. Packer, but, but he said this, he said, in Christianity, holiness is a gift and a command. That's exactly what we just said, right? The Spirit provides these fruits. He puts these things into you But holiness is also a command. We're also supposed to work alongside the Holy Spirit to pursue these things. In fact, look at the imperatives surrounding this list. Look at verse 16. There Paul tells us, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Down in verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, so what's he getting at there? Well, it means that we aim for these characteristics to become more and more recognizable in our lives. These are the things we're aiming for as Christians. This is where the Holy Spirit wants us to go. So the Lord's using our time in this passage this morning to grow us in these qualities. He's calling us to pursue these these characteristics for his glory. And here's the way we'll look at these two verses. So there's nine fruits listed here. We're going to categorize them into four categories. It seems like scripture would say, yeah, these particular things go together. These particular things go together. So here, here's the categories. They're listed there on the back of the outline. So first is the kind of heart the Christian has toward other people. You see fruits that line up under that category. The kind of heart the Christian has toward circumstances. So the circumstances in your life, the fruit that should come in the midst of those circumstances. The kind of heart that we have toward sin. And finally, the kind of heart we have toward Jesus. Those are the four categories that that we'll look at this morning. So first, what kind of heart toward people does the Holy Spirit produce? 
And it's helpful to note here, just at the front end, the fruits that are listed, they aren't behaviors, at least not simply behaviors. It's, it goes beyond and, and above that. Paul doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is doing good things or being nice or helping people out. He doesn't list particular behaviors here. He could have done that. He doesn't. Now, what the Lord gives us is qualities of character. It's bigger, isn't it? It's not just particular behaviors. It's quality of character. And this makes sense because the Lord doesn't simply change the Christian's behavior. We talked about this last week. You know, a law or, or a simple rule, that alone can change somebody's behavior, at least if the consequences are stiff enough or the, the, uh, the, the gold at the end of the rainbow is enough for you to do this particular thing. A law, a rule can change somebody's behavior. But see, God wants our hearts to change. And a law can't change a heart. That's what we saw last week. We see it all throughout Scripture. Only the Holy Spirit can change a heart, which is exactly what I think Paul points out at the end of our passage. So look at the end of, uh, well, we'll start, we'll read the whole thing, verse 22 through 23 again, but pay attention to the end. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Talked about this a little bit last week, but it looks like what Paul is saying is, a law, a set of rules, can't produce these things. It can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit can change us from, from the inside. Only the Holy Spirit can change hearts. And just as a side note, this is a good reminder for those of us who are parents. So we should certainly have rules. It's a good thing. We understand that. But we also understand that those rules can't change our kids' hearts. What that means is we can't change our kids' hearts. If you're a grandparent, you can't change your grandchildren's hearts. We can certainly teach them the gospel. We, we try to display a lifestyle that fits with the gospel, but, but we can't get to the place that we really want to get, which is their hearts. We can't manufacture faith in Christ inside of them. Only the Spirit can do that. It's like Paul says about his ministry, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. I planted, Paul planted, Apollos, this other worker, watered, but God gave the growth. We have to remember that as parents, because there's a way in which we can feel a sinful, displaced sort of pressure. There's all sorts of legitimate pressure that comes with, with parenthood, but there's also misplaced pressure that's not supposed to be there for the Christian. As a parent, as a grandparent, you're not responsible for making your kid a believer. You can't get to their heart. Only the Lord can get to their heart in a way that kind of takes the pressure off. But of course, what that does mean is that's a really good thing to pray for, isn't it? It's for the hearts of your children, for the hearts of your grandchildren. In fact, if you're a member of this church, as you pray through the membership directory, be sure that you're praying for your fellow members' children. That's why on the, at the back of the directory, we have that list a list of members' children so that we can pray for them. The Lord would work faith in Christ into their hearts. Okay, so, so Paul says that the true fruits of the Holy Spirit aren't simply behaviors. They're qualities of heart. They're things only the Holy Spirit can do. So, so again, what's the first main category? It's that the Holy Spirit gives us a particular kind of heart toward other people. And five of the qualities listed seem to fit into this category. So love, patience, kindness, goodness, 
and gentleness. They're listed there on the outline. And of course, it's no surprise that love leads off the entire list. That makes sense, right? We've seen that even in the past few weeks in Galatians chapter 5. Love is the quality that should characterize our, our Christian lives. Look back up at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. So it's all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus talks about that. Paul talks about it multiple places. Talks about it in the, the first five books of the Bible. We saw that a few weeks ago. So it's love that should characterize us. But this is how smart the Lord is. There have always been conversations among philosophers and theologians and, and other folks about what love is. You know, so sure, I should love other people, but what does that really look like? How do I love people practically? What is, is love? But see, the Lord tells us what love looks like. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is great because self-love comes standard with, with human life. So fallen humans, we all know how to love ourselves. That's why, even though our culture would say otherwise, that's why there is no Bible verse that says, love yourself. Not one. Nothing even gets at that because the Lord knows if there's one thing he doesn't have to tell us to do, it's love ourselves, right? It's the same, you know, I don't have to tell my kids, hey, enjoy that toy. You're not spending enough time with that toy. You should share it less with your siblings. The same way that my parents didn't have to tell me that, your parents didn't have to tell you that, right? No, we're plenty good at loving ourselves. The Lord knows we know how to do that. Now what he does is he leverages that, and he says that's the way you're supposed to love others. The way you're concerned with yourself and your own good, flip that and love other people the same way that you care for yourself. So as of now, there are lots of people running in the primaries to be president of the United States. You might keep up with this, you, you might not. But there could be particular candidates, particular folks that want that job that you think, you know what? I really don't think that person would do well at this job. And I think that there could be bad outcomes that would come from this person if they got this job. And maybe you're somebody that gets pretty fired up about politics. So that person is not only a candidate for president, but they're a good candidate for somebody who you don't like very much. Okay, what the Lord is telling us is that person, we have to love the way that we love ourselves. We have to want good for them. Because that's basically what this comes down to. We have to want good for them the same way that we would want good for ourselves. Or maybe you're not too politically minded. That doesn't bother you too much. I bet there's somebody, though, who has hurt you pretty significantly, maybe even recently. Or maybe you care about somebody a lot, and there's somebody who has hurt them in a significant way. Okay, you should still want good for that person. That's what's commanded of us as Christians. You should love them. Okay, so, so why is that? We're so used to hearing that, yeah, love one another. Even the world says that, right? So why is that? I, don't, I, don't, I wonder if you've stopped and kind of thought about that. Because, you know, the Bible's really clear. All humans are sinners. The vast majority of humans are enemies of the Lord. There's more people on earth today, far more, that are rejecting Jesus than are submitting to him. That'll always be the case. Okay, so why should we love people like that? All the way back to just the person that has hurt us personally. Well, why should we love them? Well, here's the main reason. It's great because it's objective. It doesn't have anything to do with the way you feel about them, the way I feel about them. It's an objective truth. Here it is. 
People are created in God's image. That's what the Bible goes back to time and time again for why we love fellow people. The reason you love others is because all people are created in God's image. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Every human being is made in God's image. We're all sort of, so, so uh, in the ancient Near East, the context in which the Bible was written and lived out, so if a king or an emperor conquered a place, oftentimes they would send in statues or pictures of the emperor. And so the thinking was that people would get to see the person who was in charge. Okay, well, it looks like maybe that's sort of the thinking here. So humans are all image bearers. We're all supposed to be reminders of one another of who it is that's ruling over all of us. We're created in God's image. And see, to do bad to a person made in God's image is to denigrate God. That's the connection. That's the main reason why God tells human government to employ the death penalty for murderers. Listen to this. This is Genesis 9, 6. The Lord says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his, the perpetrator, shall his blood be shed. So the death penalty, capital punishment for murder. Why? He tells us the next phrase, because God made man in his own image. So it's good to pause and recognize every person you come across today, every person you come across this week and for the rest of your life is deserving of love because they're created in the image of God, a God who deserves love. That's why we love other people. Every person is valuable because every person is created in the image of the most valuable person in the universe, who's the one true God. So hopefully you see that connection. And see, it's not contingent on how people live because their creation precedes anything they do in this life. So to figure out whether to love somebody, you don't look at their behavior or their character. No, you look simply at the fact that they're created in the image of God. You know, more and more, our culture tends to value people just based on their utility. And here's where you see it the most. People that are on the ends of the pole that culture doesn't see as being as productive, those are the people that our culture tends to care for less and less. So we can just think of two examples on the very end of the pole. Folks who are close to death, who are elderly, and then folks that are infants, Preborn infants. Those are two folks that in our culture in particular, our culture is less and less good at valuing, caring for. But see, as Christians, we, we value, we love every kind of person because every person is created in God's image. And our love for others should grow the more and more we see the value of the Lord. Those two things should rise and fall together. As God becomes more valuable to us, his image bearers will also become more valuable to us. As we grow in seeing God as worthy of love, we should grow in seeing his image bearers as worthy of love. Okay, well, the next fruit Paul mentions, which seems to go in this category of, of a heart toward others, it's the fourth one listed in verse 22, which is patience. So the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart that is patient toward other people. And he gives us this fruit because he knows we will need it. He knows that we will need patience. He, he knows that there would be people in your life that would get under your skin, that would rub you the wrong way, that would sin against you. 
And that's why the Spirit gives us this fruit. As Christians, we need to be patient. And the main idea of patience is that you stick with someone, even if they're making that difficult to do, which many people do. I think I've told you guys the story about the kid's sippy cup. We have this sippy cup. The whole purpose of a sippy cup is that if it falls over, it doesn't spill. This particular sippy cup spilled all over the place. Didn't care at all that it was a sippy cup. If it was laying on its side, poured out as much water as it could. That happened in the van one day. Water got all over the floorboard. This had happened before. I considered it the whole way we drove from Bangor to the house. Thought about what I was going to do, and I was just as sure when we got there that I was going to do it, and I still think it was the right call. I took that sippy cup, I went on our back porch, and I threw it into the main wilderness as far as I could throw it. There were no houses behind us, right? So there's probably a moose, or we talked about porcupines, maybe a porcupine, something that probably took that sippy cup. I never saw it again. We never recovered it. But that thing wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. It, 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 was, just, it was just inconveniencing us, right? It was leaking everywhere. So, so I threw it away. Well, there's people in your life who, who probably, to use that metaphor, probably leak all over the floorboard. People, people that, in your estimation, are causing you more trouble than, than they're doing good for you. But see, we're not allowed to throw them into the woods. We stick with people as Christians. So, so in other words, you don't, you don't write off your little sister just because she pesters you sometimes. You don't decide to ignore your coworker just because he gets under your skin. And because he's difficult to love, you you don't blow up at your spouse because he or she forgot to do the thing you asked him to do 10 minutes ago. No, the Holy Spirit provides us with and and calls us to patience. Listen to what Paul says, Galatians 3, verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. God wants us to bear with one another, to stick with one another, even when it's hard. And so the Spirit gives us patience. And as Christians, we have two great reasons to pursue patience. Number one is we know that God is patient. Our Heavenly Father is patient. And 1 Peter 1.16 tells us to be holy the way our Father is holy. So we want to follow in His footsteps. But second, and probably more helpfully, in the Gospel of Christ, God has been exceedingly patient with you. God has been patient with me, far more patient than he's calling us to be with any person. Listen to the way Paul says it. 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, Paul, I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. So see, we're only, we're only being called to do something that's a small glimpse, a teensy portion of what Christ has done for us, how patient he has been to us in the gospel. Okay, the next two fruits that, that Paul mentions as far as our relationship with other people go are kindness and goodness. Both these are pointing to the same thing, the outward expression of love. So we love, that's something that happens internally. Nobody can really see that, but it issues forward in these external things, these outward expressions of love, kindness and goodness. So when somebody who loves you gives you a Christmas present, that's kindness. There's invisible love inside of them for you. It's made visible with this outward manifestation. They show their love through giving you that present. When somebody who loves you lets you use their umbrella so you don't get wet, that's goodness. 
kindness, outward expression. When you love someone, so you go out of, out of your way to give them an encouraging word, that's kindness and goodness. And again, we're simply following God's example in this. This is what our Lord does. Listen to Ephesians 2, 7. God saved us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what it says is God's kindness is when he shows you tangibly his grace for you. That's kindness. Or in Matthew 20, you might remember this, where the Lord describes himself in the parable of the laborers. You remember this story? So this guy employs laborers to work in his field. There's guys that were there all day long. And then there's guys that he employs the last hour. He gives them all the same wage. Okay, well, you know in your heart how your sinful flesh would respond in that situation. I know in my heart how mine would. Jesus knows that we respond that way. But this is what he says. He asks, do you begrudge my goodness? That's what he's saying. His gift of the same wage to those laborers that just got there, that's his goodness. It's an expression, an outward expression of his love. And see, this is a good diagnostic question for whether you really do love someone. Because it's pretty easy to think, oh yeah, I love that person. Just sort of regardless of anything else, it's easy to tell ourselves, of course I love that person. A lot of times we're just thinking about a feeling that we have, which isn't really the Bible version, Bible's version of love. There's feelings that accompany love, but love isn't primarily a feeling. But it's a good diagnostic question. If you really love someone, do you show that love with tangible acts of kindness and goodness? So do you speak kind words, for one example? Or, or do you do the opposite, maybe? Do you perform good actions toward them? Because you certainly can't have love without kindness and goodness. Those things go together. Love produces these things automatically. And in fact, you have to have the Holy Spirit to produce these things. It works the other way, too. You can't have true kindness and goodness without the Spirit inside of us. Listen to Romans 3.12. talking about us before we were Christians. Paul says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one is good. That word for good is the same one that here is translated kind. No one is kind, not even one. Apart from the Spirit, nobody is kind or good, at least not in the way that the Lord is looking for. The 16th century pastor John Calvin, he says, nothing but what is evil comes from man. Nothing but what is good comes from the Holy Spirit. You see, we're reminded we, we can't produce kindness and goodness in ourselves, just like any of these fruits, but, but praise God, the Holy Spirit produces these qualities in the Christian, and we're called to pursue kindness and goodness more and more. Well, the final fruit that seems to fit in this category, the biggest category Paul gives here of a heart toward others is found at the very beginning of verse 23, gentleness. So as a Christian, not only are you supposed to love others and be patient toward others and be kind to them, you're also supposed to be gentle toward others. Now, we know what that word gentle means, but Paul gives us this really helpful contrast that it's helpful to keep in mind. This is 1 Corinthians 4, 21. Listen to this contrast. He says, shall I come to you with a rod, so a stick to beat you with, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Isn't that good? Those are the two ways we can respond to people. 
So, so you can figuratively beat someone over the head with a rod, or you can deal with them gently. And for being honest, we oftentimes do the first, don't we? Oftentimes, that's, that's the way that we interact with people. The, the person we think has wronged us in some way, don't we oftentimes come to them with a rod and not with gentleness? You know, how, how often have we come to the person who we disagree with on something with a rod and not gentleness? How often do we come to our family members who have inconvenienced us in some way? So we had a plan maybe about what our afternoon was going to look like, and then our family members, at least in the way we see it, get in our way. They deviate. They push us off the path of that plan that we had. Don't we oftentimes meet them with a rod and not gentleness with our sibling or children or parent? Well, the Lord wants us to be gentle. Ephesians 4.1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5.5. 5. He said, blessed are the meek. It's the same Greek word. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Look at what Paul tells us one paragraph over. Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And as we're gentle with others, again, we're simply following Jesus' example here. This is Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus deals with us gently. Isn't that so good? You've seen it. Haven't you seen it even this week? He's been so gentle with you. He does it again and again in your Christian life. He's loving toward you and patient and kind and good and gentle. So, so these are some of the fruits of the Spirit that we've been given. And this is where the Spirit's calling us to go, to pursue these qualities more and more, to grow in these things. So pursue these fruits of the Spirit. But our, our passage makes it clear that the Spirit also gives you a new heart toward your circumstances. And these two characteristics are back to back in verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. So the Holy Spirit gives you joy and gives you peace. Peace. And, and these, again, are both responses to our circumstances in life. It looks like that's what he's talking about. So when you find out you did not get that job promotion that you think you deserve and you thought you were going to get, or you find out your roof is leaking, or that your child is sick or your friend passed away, how do you respond? Those are hard circumstances. How do you respond? Because we understand we, we live in a world greatly affected by sin, so we'll be in the middle of, of hard circumstances often. How is the Spirit calling us to respond? Well, with peace and joy. So let's summarize what these words mean. Peace, at bottom of it, means you know everything is ultimately going to be okay. That's what peace is. You know in this situation, everything is ultimately going to be okay. And joy is the corresponding emotion that comes from that knowledge. You know things are going to be okay. So you have joy. So, so think about it this way. If, if there's a chance you have a certain aggressive kind of cancer and you go and get scanned and you hear the results of that scan and it turns out it's negative, no cancer. Okay, so what you're given there with that knowledge is peace. As far as this cancer goes, everything's gonna be okay. And then how does that issue forward? Joy. You understand your situation, you're gonna be okay. Everything's gonna be all right. That produces 
joy. You find yourself with, with this deep and full happiness, at least for those moments, because all, although your situation could have been dire, you found out you're going to be okay. Well, one of the benefits of the gospel of Jesus that the author of scriptures come back to you time and time again is peace. In fact, if you think about it, that's why that word peace is included in almost every New Testament letter in simply the greeting. So grace and peace to you, it's in every one of Paul's epistles. It's in both of Peter's New Testament letters. It's in two of John's New Testament letters. Grace and peace to you. So just like the idea of grace, peace is central. It's a central idea in the Christian faith. And of course, the most significant kind of peace a person can have is peace with God. That's what it's talking about primarily, peace with God. Now, before you were a Christian, you did not have peace with God. Not even close. It was the opposite. You had spent your lifetime as a non-believer rebelling against God, making yourself his enemy. But if you're a Christian, then through trust in Christ, all your sins were forgiven and you were given peace with God. This is the way Paul says it in Romans 5. At the very beginning of the chapter, he says, Since we've been justified by faith in Christ, given an innocent verdict in Christ, we have peace with God through Jesus. And he says this in verse 9 of Romans 5. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So through the gospel, God's no longer your enemy. You're no longer waiting for his wrath to come upon you, his, his judgment, his impending judgment because of your sin. No, because of trust in Jesus, your sins have been forgiven. And so you have been reconciled to God. You've, you've gotten out from under his wrath and you have peace. And because you have peace with God, that means you'll have eternal peace in the new heavens and the new earth. So, so because of Jesus, your eternity will be marked by perfect peace. Just a side note here. I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this verse. We're in North Carolina. Praise the Lord. We're on the coast. And it's a coast different from the main coast. You can actually get in the water, which we have been thankful for and, and loved. You might have seen this verse, Revelation 21.1 tells you that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sea. You ever notice that verse? If you have, you probably just skip past it. Just think, oh, hopefully that's a typo. Hopefully there will be ocean in heaven. Here's what, here's what we're pretty confident is happening there. In the ancient Near East, the ocean was a dangerous, scary place. Still is. We saw that with events even of this past week. The ocean, waves, right? Creatures under the water, scary things. Now, it looks like what that, what that verse is getting at is that there won't be anything that's opposite of peace. There won't be any chaos in the new heavens and the new earth. All that will be there is perfect peace. And this is really the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that sinners can be reconciled with God. We can have peace with God for eternity. And so if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you don't know what you think about Jesus, that's our appeal to you. We're echoing the sentiments of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.20, where he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And the way to do that isn't by having to clean yourself up or be a better person, right? No, the, the way to do that is trust in Jesus alone. Now, like we're seeing here, he'll produce fruit. You will become a different person. You'll be made a new creation right off the bat. 
and begin to grow in that. But the way to have peace with God isn't through working and trying to be good. It's through trusting in Christ, who is perfect on our behalf. Simply placing our full hope and confidence in Jesus covers all of our sins, gives us eternal peace with God. Come talk to me if you're interested in thinking more about that. Talk to another member in this church, pastor in this church. But for the Christians here, you, you have peace with God. And it's good to think about that peace often. I don't think we can think about it too much. Listen to this verse. Listen to what Philippians 4, 7 says that that peace will do for us. So thinking about the peace we have with God through Christ, listen to what that will produce. Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So don't take your peace with God for granted. Don't, don't assume that that's a light thing. It's, it's not. In fact, it's the most valuable thing a sinner can have. Peace with God through Christ. And as a Christian, you have that. So, so think about that often. And as you do, recognition of that peace will inevitably produce the second fruit here, joy. Peace with God through Christ is a happy thing. Happy things make us feel happy. That's the way it is. Peace with God as we meditate on it will give us joy. Now, that doesn't mean the Christian can never be sad. We know that's not true. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, Paul characterizes the Christian as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. There's lots to be sorrowful about in this world, but we've been spared by the greatest potential sorrow, which is having to pay for our sins under the wrath of God away from his presence for all eternity. And that means on the most important subject in the universe, we have peace, and that will produce joy. Listen to what the Lord says in Hebrews 10, verse 34. In this passage, the Lord is talking to believers who have gone through significant persecution. In fact, they've even had their houses and their stuff taken from them because they're Christians. This is what the Lord says, Hebrews 10, 34. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So they had joy even in the midst of it. Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So see, there's, there's nothing bad that can happen to us in this world that takes away that peace, that takes away our future hope. So we can continue to have peace in the midst of any suffering. We can continue to have joy. So pursue these fruits of the Spirit. Well, the next category as we're looking at these contains only one fruit, and the category is your heart toward sin. Your heart toward sin. The Holy Spirit gives us a heart that exercises self-control when it comes to sin, which is the final fruit listed in, in verse 23. So like we talked about so much in our passage last week, as Christians, we no longer work for the sinful flesh. We, we have the Holy Spirit, and now our sinful nature works for the Spirit. The Spirit overpowers our sinful nature. Before Christ, you, you couldn't control yourself, at least not tr true control, but now the Spirit can control your sinful desires. Look back up at Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the Spirit gives us the power to say no to our sin. The Spirit gives us self-control. And that's because God knows that's best for us. So just, just think about people you've known in the past, or maybe even now, who have very little self-control. How'd that go for them? Haven't you seen havoc be wreaked in lives 
where they don't have self-control in their relationships, in their employment, in their overall life. It's like Proverbs 25, 28 says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. If we had no self-control, our sin would just flood into our lives, do whatever it wanted to do. And again, that was our situation before coming to know the Lord. But, but of course, now it's not. So by way of application, do you exercise self-control? Do I exercise self-control? So how often during the day do you have a particular desire that you say no to? Because that's something that happens in your life much, regularly. And most importantly, how often do you say no to sin? So when you feel that impulse to, to brag about yourself, to make yourself look good to other people, do you ever say no to that impulse? Or when you feel that impulse to be sinfully anxious about the state of the world, do you ever say no to that impulse? Or if you feel that impulse to gossip or lust or love money, do you ever say no? As incredible as it sounds, we can because of the Spirit. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Or Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. So not only is the Christian loving toward others, peaceful and joyful toward our circumstances, the Christian is self-controlled when it comes to sin. Well, as we close, let's look at the, the first fruit of the Spirit when it comes to our heart toward Jesus, which is the final category. This is what Paul's getting at with that last word in verse 22, faithfulness. So we, we understand this word faithfulness. That's when you fulfill your commitments, right? You're faithful. And if you're a Christian, then your most important commitment is to the Lord. You've pledged yourself to Christ. That began the moment you first trusted in Jesus. That was declared publicly through your baptism. It's part of the way that 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 symbol is meant to, to be used to show our commitment to Christ. You've, you've pledged to put all your hope in Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus has called us to do, to be faithful to him. Paul tells the Antioch church in Acts eleven twenty three. 23, he tells them, remain faithful to the Lord. We're supposed to be like Ephesians 1, 1 says, faithful in Christ Jesus. Revelation 2, 10 tells us, in what kinds of circumstances we're supposed to remain faithful. And it's even the most difficult ones. There we're told to be faithful unto death. Of course, we're supposed to want to hear those words from Jesus in Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful servant. So what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus? It's the last thing we'll talk about. Well, it certainly means we aim to obey him and honor him. In our, in our practical lives, we should aim for growth in all the areas we just mentioned in this passage. But at heart of it, faithfulness to Jesus means you're holding on to Jesus. That's the main idea. Faithfulness to Jesus means you're holding on to Jesus. You realize how much you need him. Like Jacob wrestling with God in the book of Genesis, you remember that? Where he says, I won't let go. That's the idea. No matter what's going on around you, you won't let go of Jesus. Like that hemorrhaging woman in the gospel stories, you know all you really need is to touch him, to grab hold of his garment. 
And that's really the chief characteristic of the Christian is faithfulness to Christ. So is that you? Do you realize you need Jesus more than you need your job or your physical health or your family? Are you like the guy in Mark 10? You might remember this, the crowd's telling him to be quiet, but he just keeps hollering louder and louder, Jesus, have mercy on me. So be faithful to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. But see, here's the great part. His faithfulness precedes ours. Jesus' faithfulness to us comes before our faithfulness to Christ. Listen to Hebrews 10.23. There we're told, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. That's Christ. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So like we've said, hold on to Christ, right? Do it without wavering. But now listen to the rest of that verse. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So we're called to be faithful to Jesus because we know primarily, and before we were faithful to him, he's faithful to us. Even your faithfulness to Christ is simply following his example toward you. So because you know how faithful Jesus is toward you, pursue Christ, be faithful to him. Exercise self-control toward your sin. Exercise peace and joy in all circumstances and love toward others. And we know one, one of the best ways you can love your fellow church members here at Cornerstone is, is to pray for them. So just a note here, because these are such great things to pray for one another, aren't they? A lot of times it's easy as, as believers to, to think that the best way to pray for somebody is something where it's, it's contingent on their circumstances. So to really pray for this person well, the best prayer I can pray for them, I need to know what's going on in their life. And certainly, there's things to pray for for one another. that We'll have a leg up if we know what's going on in their life. But the Bible makes it clear the most significant, important prayers we can pray for one another as Christians are the prayers we can pray if we know nothing about their external situation. The things that the Lord wants for us are these fruits of the Spirit. We can pray these for one another, even if we don't know exactly what this past week was like or, or what difficulty is going on in life. These are great things to pray for for one another. And of course, we need to encourage each other as we press on in pursuit of these fruits of the Spirit, as we grab onto these characteristics the Lord provides for us through the gospel of Christ. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful that you do not leave us as dead trees where, where you might spare us from judgment, but we're still laying dead and rotten on the ground. No, Father, you spare us from judgment, but then you give us life, you plant us, and you produce fruit through us. Father, we're so thankful that that is part of the good news of the gospel. We pray, Father, that this church, Cornerstone Baptist, would be more and more characterized with members who are characterized by these things. We want to be a church that has these things, that's pursuing fruit in these areas, because we know the Holy Spirit's pursuing fruit in us in these areas. Father, we're so thankful that Christ is our perfect example of all of these things. We're thankful he's given us peace with you 
And because of that, we can have joy in the midst of all circumstances that could come our way. We pray that he would be honored with our lives. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.